you have your Bibles this morning, I would ask that you go ahead and open them up to John, the second chapter, and in a moment we're going to be looking at a story that is found there that is recorded for us in John's gospel account. You know, we have been traveling, we have been walking through this book together on Sunday morning, and I hope that it is a book that is really resonating in your spirit. For me, it has been a powerful book. I love the book of John, and as a matter of fact, I'm often asked the question, if you were going to encourage me, Pastor, to read any book, what book would you encourage me to read? The first book that I've always encouraged people to read is the Gospel of John. And the reason that is, is because no gospel account gives us a more clearer picture of who Jesus Christ is than John's gospel account. So if you really want to know who Jesus Christ is, read the gospel of John, because the writer, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, really gives us a good picture of who Jesus Christ is and really what he came to do here on earth. And we're going to be looking at one of those stories in a moment that really point to that fact of who Jesus Christ is. The second book that I would tell you to read is the one that my Sunday school class and I are going through on Sunday mornings, and it is the book of James. There is no book that is more practical to the Christian faith than the book of James. I like to say it like this, it's where the rubber meets the road. You know what I'm saying? If you want to learn about how to live out your faith in a real world, read the book of James because that's what it does. It shows us about what it means to have a mature faith, really how to put into practice what it is that we learn from God's Word. It's not just enough to have knowledge of God's Word. Knowledge of God's Word is very important. But we need more than just knowledge. We must put into practice what it is that we've hidden in our hearts and in our minds. That's the reason the writer James says, do not simply be hearers of the Word of God, but be what? Doers of the Word of God, right? How do we do God's Word? By living it out in everyday life. Isn't that true? And so I encourage you, if you're looking for books to read in the Bible, find the Gospel of John, find the book of James. Both of them are powerful books to be read. Now, I've got a date for you. I want you to listen to this date. This is the date, May the 22nd, 1999. May the 22nd, 1999. Now, for most of you, that date literally means nothing in your life. It is very insignificant when I just quoted that date. But I will tell you, for two people in this congregation this morning, it has significant meaning. That's for me and my wife. That's the day that we got married, May the 22nd, 1999. And I still remember that event in my life. Men, how many of you remember your marriage? Don't raise your hand. Because I don't want to embarrass you if you don't. I hope that we all can say that we remember that special day in our life. Now, this is what happened. Robin and I met in October of 1998. I proposed to her in December. Now, I'm not, con I'm not saying this is the way you should do it. I was already very old in life, and I knew if I was ever going to get started in marriage, I needed to go ahead and get started. And by that time, I'd already been praying a long time, asking God, please, God, show me the one. And the very first time I met my wife, I knew she was the one. God was very clear. I just had to convince her. 
God and I were on the same page. We just needed to pull her along into that relationship with us. And so after about two months of coaxing and working, I finally convinced her and she said yes. I figured I needed to at least give her two months, man, you know, to kind of get her feet under. And so she said yes, and so in May 22nd, 1999, we got married. Now, I will tell you, I don't remember all of the details concerning that marriage that day. I, I can honestly tell you that. I remember certain details from that day, I do. I remember standing at the front of the church. I remember my wife walking into the back door of the church with her father. I remember how beautiful she looked in her wedding dress. I remember all of that. I even remember me, and now don't hold this against me, there was a little tear that, that welled up there in the corner of my eye because I had been waiting for this woman for such a long time. And then I remember her coming down the aisle and I remember us committing our lives together, making that vow before God and man that we would honor, honor and cherish one another for our life, for our life. And that was almost 20 years ago. It was a special event in my life. It was a joyous occasion, a great celebration. But I would tell you this morning, as great as that event was, it is nothing compared to a Jewish wedding of the first century. So this morning, I want to invite you to go with me to a Jewish wedding that happens in the first century. The setting is the town of Canaan. Canaan was a town that was about seven or eight miles from the town of Nazareth. Do you remember the importance of the town of Nazareth? Nazareth was the place that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ lived his childhood and his early adult years. We don't know all of the context surrounding this event, but we do know this. We know that Mary, Jesus' mother, was invited to this wedding, and as a result of this, we're not sure whether Jesus received an invitation or what, but we know that Jesus and his disciples choose to attend this wedding. And it is an amazing celebration that takes place here. Jewish weddings were elaborate. As a matter of fact, there were three stages to Jewish weddings in the first century. The first stage was called the betrothal. The betrothal was a year-long period of time. Think about that for a minute, men a year long, that you were betrothed to this woman. And actually, the betrothal only could be broken by a divorce. Do y'all remember a situation like that in the Bible? What about Jesus? I mean, what about Joseph and Mary? Do you remember what Joseph was going to do? They were in their betrothal period. He was going to put away Mary quietly. He was going to divorce her. As a result, she was going to have child, and it was not his child. The second stage of Jewish wedding was the procession. And now this is unique. This is what would happen during the procession. The groom and the groomsmen and the friends of the groom, they would travel to the home of the bride. And then they would joyously lead her through the town celebrating the marriage that was taking place that day. And she was accompanied by all of her friends and her bridesmaid, and the rest of them. The third phase 
of Jewish wedding or stage was what we refer to as the wedding feast. Actually, that is the stage that is described for us in this story. It is the wedding feast. Now, have you heard about another wedding feast? Have you read the book of Revelation? There's going to be a great wedding feast with Jesus Christ and His church in the book of Revelation. Do you all remember that story or that passage of Scripture? Now listen to me. If you know Jesus, one day you're going to be a part of that wedding feast. Now this is what was unique about the wedding feast. It lasted for at least a week. It was a week-long event that was attended by almost everyone in town. It was a major social event. And get this, men, it was the responsibility of the groom and the groom's family to provide provisions for everyone who attended the wedding feast. As a matter of fact, if you failed to provide food and drink for all of the wedding guests, it brought great shame to your family. Now I can tell you, if Robin and I would have been Jewish, we still would not be married today. And the reason is, is I could have never held a wedding feast for everybody in my town. We barely had two nickels that we could rub together when we got married. But can you imagine that? Can you imagine how embarrassing it would have been for a family not to have been able to provide for the guest that attended? If you can imagine that, I want you to think with me for just a moment. What is the most embarrassing time in your life? A time where you really embarrassed yourself. As embarrassed as you were, I can tell you it was nothing compared to the embarrassment that this family experienced in this story. I mean, you brought shame on your entire family to your community. As a matter of fact, there was even a law that was written, if you failed to provide for your guests, you could be charged criminally. Did you know that? Isn't that crazy? It is. It's the truth. They were elaborate events. It was a great celebration. But all of this weighed upon the groom and his family. So you can imagine in this story when the groom and his family cannot provide wine for all of the party guests, what must have been going on in their mind? Can you imagine how embarrassing that would have been when you think about this? If you can imagine that, you can experience what this family was going through. But little did this family know that there was one who attended this party that provided the solution to the problem. His name was Jesus Christ. I don't know if you realize this or not, but Jesus Christ is the great problem solver in this world. Do you know that this morning? 
As a matter of fact, some of you need to hear that. That is the truth you're going to need to take away from this story when we read it in just a moment. I don't know everything that is going on in your life today. I don't know all of the problems that you may be facing, but there is no problem that is too big for Jesus to handle in your life today. The issue is not the size of your problem. The issue is the size of your faith. Will you trust Jesus Christ with your problem? That's the issue. That is the issue at hand. You see, sometimes we become so overwhelmed with our problems and we become so focused on the problems in our life that we fail to understand that we serve the one who is the great problem solver in life. And more than anything else, what Jesus Christ wants us to do is just to come to His throne and lay our feet, I mean, lay our problems at His feet and let Him take over and take control of whatever it is we're facing in life. You know what He's saying to us this morning more than anything else? He's just saying, trust me. Trust me. You know, I'll never forget in 1992 of October, I got on my knees in the home of my grandmother at about 3 o'clock in the morning, and this is what I told, God, I can't do it. I'm just going to surrender everything to you right now. I'm placing it all at your throne. I'll never forget the sense of peace, the burden that was lifted off my shoulders when I just said, here it is, you take it, you run it, you control it. I'm going to tell you, it is a freeing experience when we acknowledge before a holy God, I cannot do it. Here it is. You take it. I'm trusting that you'll do whatever is necessary with this problem in my life. And now listen to me very carefully, please. This is the great news. Jesus Christ always shows up and will deal with whatever problem we're willing to give with Him. I'm not saying that He'll make all of the consequences go away of the problems that we face in life, but I will tell you this, He will free you up spiritually. You won't have to deal with the burden of your problem anymore if you will lay it at His feet. He is the great problem solver in this world and for some of you this morning that's the message you need to hear you just need to realize that we serve a Jesus that's bigger than anything that we face in this world amen and we can trust in him we can bring it to him we can lay it at his feet all right so I want us to dive into this text this morning It is a great story about a wedding that is taking place at Canaan, and we're going to see that Jesus Christ is going to intervene on behalf of these people. He is going to be the great problem solver in his life. Now, I want us to be oh so very careful as we approach this text this morning because it would be very easy for us to read through this in a hurried fashion and miss the deeper meaning of what is taking place. Really, the key in understanding this story, this miracle that Jesus Christ performs here at Canaan, and at this wedding is found in one single word, and that word is the word sign. 
The word sign is something that points beyond itself to something greater. The miracle of Jesus turning the water into wine pointed to something greater. First, it pointed to who Jesus Christ is. It shows us that Jesus Christ has dominion over the natural world. Do you see that in this text? I don't know about you, but there's not a lot of turning water into wine in my life. I, I don't know if you've been able to do that, but I, I, I don't know of many people who have been able to. Matter of fact, I can just say, I don't know of anyone who can do that except for Jesus. But should we be surprised by that here in this text? Don't we see Jesus Christ having dominion over the natural world throughout His ministry here on earth? Cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And what happened? There was such a large catch, they couldn't put it into the boat. Jesus stood up in the boat and He announced, Peace be still. And the wind and the waves stopped. Another time, he tells his disciples, go down to the Sea of Galilee, open the fish's mouth, and you will find a coin in it. Go and pay the temple tax. That would be nice, wouldn't it? You know, I don't live far from Village Creek. If I could just run down there and get me a fish to help pay my taxes, that would be nice, wouldn't it? But what we need to understand here is this sign that Jesus performs, the first of seven in the Gospel of John, the sign that he performs here really shows exactly who he was, that by him, for him, and through him, all things have their being. Isn't that true? He is the creator of the world. That's what John says in the opening verses. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator of this world. We see that very clearly. But not only does it just point to the fact of who Jesus is, it also points to the fact of what Jesus Christ would do while He was here on earth. What He would do while He was here on earth. This miracle, this sign, the first of seven, it speaks of the salvation that Jesus Christ would bring to the world. What He secured for you and I at the cross, at Calvary, through His sacrificial death. That's what this sign points to. I want us to read this together. And as we read it, I think there's going to be a couple of different truths lessons that we learn from this passage of Scripture about salvation. I'm just going to point them out as we read. Now, I will say something about this miracle. Of all of the miracles that Jesus Christ performs in the Gospels, this is my favorite one. And the reason I like it so much is for this reason. It was a quiet miracle. There's no shouting there's no loud commands given. There's no laying on of hands or binding of Satan in this passage of Scripture. There's no hocus-pocus or mumbo-jumbo stuff. We don't see any of that. When we read this story, you're going to notice something else. Jesus Christ doesn't even touch the water. Do you know what He's going to tell them? 
He's going to say, you see those stone pots over there? Those pots that are used for purification, the rite of purification within the, Judea, the religion of Judaism? You take and you fill them up to water with, to the brim. And you know what they did? They did exactly what Jesus Christ told them to do. And then he looked at them and he said, Servant, you draw out of that container there a cup of water and take it to the master of the feast. And when the master of the feast received the cup of water, he drank the cup of water and you could almost hear a silence, a hush that fell over the group that day. Do you know why? Because there's something that has taken place in this story that is completely out of the norm. It completely contradicts the culture of that day and time. But have you ever noticed that's what Jesus Christ so often does? He doesn't work in the manner in which we deem is the best way to work. He works in His own way. Now I want you to listen to this story here. It says, on the third day, chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, that was the third day after He had visited Galilee, there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee. Now Galilee is the region. Canaan is the town in the region. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with His disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now I want us to pause right here because I don't want us to misunderstand what it is that Jesus Christ is saying in this text. When he calls his mother woman, he is not being disrespectful to her. Actually, this was a term of endearment. This was a term of great respect. It's kind of like when we say to people today, or we would say to a woman today, ma'am. That's what he is saying here to his mother. So Jesus is not being disrespectful to his mother. You know, on more than one occasion, I've tried to convince my wife of that as well. You know what I'm saying? There's times that I've called her woman, but that seems not to be, un I mean, that seems not to be acceptable in my home, and I've learned that with time, you know. I'm just trying to model Jesus to her, but she doesn't seem to feel that way at all for one reason or another. But I want you to know that he's not at all being disrespectful to his mother here. This is a term of endurment. And he says to her, my hour has not yet come. His hour to be revealed to the world as the Savior, as God in the human... It has not arrived yet. I believe that's the reason why this is that silent miracle we see in this passage of Scripture. Now there were six stone pots, water pots, water jars, that were there for the Jewish rites of purification. They bathed themselves to cleanse themselves in Judaism, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants... Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Now, I, I like that. Did you notice right there they never questioned Jesus Christ? I would have. Wouldn't have you? I mean, think about it. Hey, well, Jesus, don't you know this is bathing water? Don't, you do know that, right? But they never do that. They do exactly what Jesus Christ tells them to do without knowing why they are doing what He has told them to do. There is an important lesson. These servants model something very important for us as God's children. 
We're not always called to know why we are to do what we are to do, but we are always called to obey God's Word, even when we don't understand. Even when we can't make sense of it, we're still called to obey. Would you agree with me on that this morning? That is what is modeled here. Do you remember what uh, Mary said to him? Do exactly what Jesus Christ tells you to do. And that's exactly what they did. And then he said to them, draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now I want us to pause right here in this story because I believe in those last verses here we see a very important lesson concerning salvation that is taught right here. This is it. Only Jesus has the power to transform a person's life. Only Jesus has the power to transform a person's life. In the same way that Jesus transformed the water into wine, Jesus transforms people's life who come to Him in faith. Salvation is the act where God transforms a believing sinner's life. This is what we find throughout Scripture, isn't it? We see it over and over again. The single greatest miracle performed by God is God taking that which is spiritually dead and giving it spiritual life. Amen? Now listen to me. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that miracle has taken place in your life today. Your life has been utterly transformed by God in the same way that Jesus Christ transformed this water into wine. Did you see it here? We see this truth taught throughout Scripture. Think about it for a moment. What does the word regeneration mean? Or think about this one, the word born again. Or I like what Paul, how Paul describes this transformation in our life. This is what he says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a what? New creation. The old is gone and the new has come. If you're here this morning and you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your life has been transformed. You are a new creation in Christ. That is the truth of God's Word. So what does that mean this morning? What does it mean when we say that we are a new creation in Christ? Well, it means three things. You may want to write these down. First, it means your priorities have been transformed. That's what it means. Simply said, when Jesus transformed our lives, He became the focus and the desire of our life. It's not a matter of having a list of priorities and Jesus being at the top of the list. As one of my friends says, he says, Jesus is the list. Do you see the difference? Jesus is the list. That means Jesus is at the very center of our life is what it means. Everything in life 
centers on Him. He transforms our priorities. But it also means He transforms our attitude as well. How many of you have ever read Philippians chapter 2? Paul said to the church at Philippi there, he said, we are to have the mind of Christ in us. Some translations render it this way, we are to have the attitude of Christ in us. So what was the attitude of Christ? If you read the rest of chapter 2 of the book of Philippians, do you know what it was? He had the attitude of a servant. This is what it meant. He was other people focused. You've heard me make this statement before. There is no time that we are more like Christ than when we choose to serve. We should have the attitude of a servant. Number three, it means that our perspective has been transformed. Now think about this for a moment. Before we met Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we used to view the world through our eyes. But when we trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and we came into a relationship with Him, that all changed. Now we see the world through His eyes. That means this, what God says is important is what we say is important. What God values, that's what we value in life. God says, my church is important. The church is important to us. God says, worshiping me is important. Worship is important to me. I begin to value that which God says is important for those who have chosen to follow me. Now listen to me carefully this morning. If your perspective has not been transformed, then you need to take a step back and you need to ask yourself the challenging question. If my desires and the focus of my life has not changed since I professed Jesus Christ, then I need to back up and I need to ask myself the question, do I really know Jesus Christ? Do you see what I'm saying? It's hard to say. We love Jesus Christ, and we don't love the things that He loves. Do you see? That just doesn't add up. Do you see what I'm saying? It doesn't add up. That kind of transformation, a transformation that changes my priorities, my attitude, and perspective, can only happen as a result of a miracle of God in my life. Now here is the practical application for some of you this morning. It's very simple. Jesus has the power and the desire to transform your life if you will only respond to Him in faith. He wants to make you into a new creation if you don't know Him this morning. In the same way that He transformed the water into wine, Jesus wants to transform your life. He wants to take you from that which was spiritually dead to that which is spiritually alive in Christ Jesus.
That's what he wants to do in your life. But it's only a miracle that God can do. It's only a miracle God can do. There's a second lesson in this story. Let's go back to this text. Let's listen to what he says here in verse 10. And he said to them, Everyone serves the good wine first. That was what was culturally acceptable. That's what culture dictated at that time. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine is served next. But now listen to this. Don't miss it here. It's so subtle. If we're not careful, we'll miss what Jesus says in this next statement. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of His signs Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. John said in this passage of Scripture that the head, the master of the wedding feast said, you have kept the good wine until now. I like what one translation I read this week said. This is what it said. You have left the best for last. I like that. You have left the best for last. So here's the truth. Christ leaves the very best for last for you and I. He does. That's exactly what Christ does in our life. This is a truth that we see throughout Scripture. Now follow along with me. Just stay with me as we bring it all to a conclusion here. The enemy always offers sin that seems pleasurable and delightful at first. But ultimately, in its end, it always leads to death and destruction. Solomon said there's a path that seems right unto man, but in its end... It leads to death. Hear me carefully. Sin always brings death. Always brings death. Physical death as well as spiritual death. But now, listen to what Jesus says. I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. Jesus offers us life more abundantly. Life overflowing. Hear the words of Jesus Christ in John the 14th chapter. Here it is. I have gone to prepare a place for you. One day I will come back and take you to be there with me also. Paul said we are simply sojourners, aliens here in this world. This world is not our home. We are simply passing through. We are looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Now get this. The Bible says one day. Jesus is going to step out of heaven. The trumpet will sound and all of those who have died in Christ will rise from the dead. And those who are left here on earth will be changed in the twinkling of the eye. We will be caught up in the air with Him and we will behold Him face to face, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Do you see what I'm saying? The best is always at the end with Jesus Christ. He leaves the very best for life, for the last. That is the truth. Can you imagine that one day? Can you imagine that one day? I don't know about you, but man, I get excited when I think about that. Y'all probably can't tell, but I do. I get excited when I think about the fact one day, 
I'm going to behold my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ face to face. The Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. You see, the best is yet to come for those who know Jesus Christ in a personal way. We are able to experience Him spiritually here on this earth, but one day we will experience Him face to face. The majesty of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the question each one of us must ask ourselves this morning is this Am I prepared? Am I prepared? Listen to me. He's coming back one day. And for those who don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, it is going to be a very sad day. Am I prepared? Are you? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and the way it speaks to our heart. Oh, Father God, you are so good to us. There are no amount of words that can even come into my heart and into my mind this morning to express how grateful I am for you. And Lord, as with many others in this building, I long for the day when I can behold my Savior face to face the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Father, indeed you have left the best for last. You have prepared a place for us, and we are eternally grateful for that. Father, as we enter into this time of invitation, I pray that you would just have your way in our hearts and our lives. Father, if there's someone here this morning who does not know you in a personal way, I pray today would be the day that they come into a relationship with you. Father, if there are Christians here this morning who are not walking in obedience to you, you're not Lord of their life. Father, there's going to be a moment of sadness in their life as well when they find themselves face to face with their Lord Jesus. I pray today would be the day with your power that they would redirect their lives. You guide us and direct us through this time of invitation. You be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.